You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Hi, and welcome to Inside Intercom. Today I'm joined by our VP of product, Paul Adams. Hey, Paul. Hey, how are you? Good, thank you. Uh, quite a pleasure to speak. <laughs> uh, so, for the benefit of our listeners who I guess don't know or haven't uh, tracked your career as closely as I have, uh, you worked uh, at Google and Facebook and you've worked on products like Gmail, YouTube, Google+, Google Maps, Latitude, Buzz, and then at Facebook you had an interesting one where you were, I think, the product manager for Facebook's ad units as the end user experience system, is that right? Yeah, uh, at the time there were about five or six product managers in the ads team at Facebook. I understand now it's far greater than that. Uh, And there was um, four or five PMs for the advertiser's experience, so how you create an ad, for example, those workflows, analytics, things like that. And then I was the sole PM for the ad units, which was the things that actually the users of Facebook would experience. Right. That's, I mean, on one hand, I'm kind of tempted to read something into the five to one ratio, but on the other hand, it's actually admirable that they had anyone doing it, right? Uh, I mean, at the time, yeah. Uh, um, I think there isn't much to read into the five to one ratio other than there's tons and tons of work on the advertiser's side. You right. Know, there's like markets and um, uh, a lot of complex historical precedent for the types of things you need in order to run ads right. across networks and all sorts of things like that. Right. And so you're effectively the good guy of the end user, right? Like you're making sure that it wasn't as bad as it should be? <laughs> Depends how you think about it. Uh, uh, the other guys, the other PMs that sort of listened to this would say they were good guys too. All right. <laughs> they, uh, they, were, uh, they were like helping advertisers make sense of something that was uh, complicated and new. Like at the time, this was, you know, going back, um, this would have been like 2011, 2012, I think. Yeah. And uh, at the time, like Facebook's advertising network ecosystem, the ideas the company had for ads were, were pretty different, radical, and so um, you know, for advertisers it was overwhelming. Uh, and since then the team, and even since I left, the team has done a phenomenally good job of making it much easier to understand. Yeah. And so they would say they were the good guys for the advertisers. Absolutely. Lots of good guys. Uh, <laughs> yeah, all good guys. <laughs> um, but so, you know, Google and Facebook, two of the obviously b- biggest software companies, you know, some of the most popular products in the world you worked on. Um, what, was there a significant difference in how a product was run between Facebook and Google? Uh, they were definitely different, and um, it depends how you think about it. You know, was it a delib- were these deliberate differences or functions of scale and things like that? Um, the biggest difference for me was that uh, the teams I tended to work in at Google, and I worked in the UX team at Google, um, uh, the teams I worked in at Google were uh, big, like um, big by Facebook standards and big by Intercom standards. So there would have been like you know, 20, 30 people in teams. Um, most of the vast majority of those would be engineers. There'd be like a couple of product managers, maybe a couple of designers. Um, and you know, I was in the UX team in those teams. And then at Facebook, with the, the scale was just entirely different. So the ad units team that I was the product manager for, we had uh, me, uh, one designer, and three engineers. And at times we had four engineers if we were in the uh, spoiled crazy days. Yeah, uh, we mostly had three three engineers, and that was you know somewhat deliberate. Um, uh, somewhat, uh, you're somewhat starved of resources in in the sense that you are in the idea that you would um, focus on the most important things. You know, typically in my experience too, if you give a team many many engineers, uh, and such that the ratio of product management to design to engineering isn't right. 
Uh, you also just get people doing things that uh, aren't necessarily aligned with uh, the vision or the product plan or the roadmap or whatever. Um, because, you know, the product manager can't stay on top of, like, many engineers who want to do good work, want to build things, they want to be efficient uh, with their time, etc. And they're creative, and so they'll go and build things that may not necessarily be net positive overall. Right. What, you mean, you, sp- you speak about a ratio there, is that something you keep in mind? Has it got to do with, like, you know, how much work a PM can keep track of? Like, is there a sort of golden ratio for you here? Uh, there, I have a ratio, yeah. People would disagree with me on this. Uh, I've had this debate many times with many people. Personally, I think the ratio is, uh, I should preface this by saying it really depends on what type of problem you're solving. Some problems are very computationally heavy. So at Google, for example, you know, some of the problems in search are you know, very computationally heavy. So there's lots of uh, engineers who are purely working on backend infrastructure or writing algorithms or you know, things like that. Whereas um, maybe at Facebook, you know, Facebook also has those types of problems, but uh, at least where I worked and what I did, less so. Um, but here, you know, to come, the ratio that we're trying to employ is uh, one one five. So one product manager, one product designer, and then five engineers. Four to five engineers. Right. Five is like, you know, when it gets to five, uh, uh, PMs and uh, designers start asking me about when they're going to get help. <laughs> right. And in help, does help like that for you look like we need to break this team up into two sub teams, or does it look like oh they just need an extra designer? Like, would you be happy to scale the whole thing up according to that ratio? Yeah. Um, again, I think it depends on the type of problem or team you've got. And honestly, at Intercom, we're still we're still figuring that out. I think to some degree. Sometimes, uh, you know, as a product gets bigger or as you expand your um, horizons for what a product might uncover uh, or entail, um, the team could be split in two, and they'd have. Um, like a sub challenges within a central theme. Uh, if you do that, of course, then the risk is that, like, you know, with individual teams, you're splitting things up, and so you need someone who's gluing this all together. Um, and so, you know, there's different ways this can work. Sometimes you can have a group PM type role, uh, and then more junior product managers who are more executional on in those multiple teams. That can work well if you've got a really good group PM or someone who's strong at thinking strategically and horizontally and systematically. Um, or you can build, grow the team internally. Uh, you know, um, at times when I worked on Gmail, uh, there were two PMs um, who, you know, had more or less one. One I think did report to the other, but they more or less um, between them figured out how things would work, and it was more of a partnership, and they weren't, it wasn't split in the right. same in the same way. Interesting. What, if anything, did? Um did you borrow or take inspiration from when you designed how Intercom builds product from Facebook or Google? Yeah, um, I like to think I took the best of both. Uh, I like to think that too. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we all like to think that here. Yeah. Um, uh, and this is purely from my own observations. Uh, there were things at Facebook that I thought were phenomenally great, uh, phenomenally good. Um, uh, things like, uh, um, you know, shorter... Uh, smaller teams, for example, um, shorter cycles on project development. Uh, Facebook would typically um, move faster and build things faster. I think a lot of that was down to how the how the culture worked and how the teams were structured. So, you know, as I said, the teams were smaller. The culture was very oral, so um, talking basically. Uh, at the time, at least in where I worked, in my experiences there, often people didn't write stuff down. There's cost to that too. But if you're all in the same, never mind the same building, you're sitting around each other at the same desks, you're talking every day, you're there every day, everyone's there in person, you can get a lot done without having to write all this stuff down, uh, using whiteboards and things like that as well. Um, 
whereas at Google, you know, as I said earlier, it was a bit bigger. Uh, right. and, and as a result, the artifacts tended to be different. So, you know, Google have this PRD process, uh, product requirements doc, um, which is basically their project brief. In my experience, they were long, uh, like many, many pages at times, up to 10 pages. And again, I, I left Google, you know, seven years ago or something like that. So I don't know what it's like today. Um, as far as I understand, PRDs still exist. I don't know what length they tend to be written. Um, but they, they were long. The longer the doc, the less it gets read. Right. Uh, and the longer the doc, the less it gets remembered. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for example, here, you know, in our product process, we employ, or at least I employ a strict one-page rule. So uh, when I see our um, equivalent of a PRD, uh, it's, if, it's one, if it's not one page, I, my first point of feedback is, give me the one pager. And again, it's kind of similar philosophy to the Facebook thing of like, if you're starved of resources, you'll focus. You know, again, if you're forced to limit this thing to one page, you'll get much better at describing the problem you're solving or the opportunity coherently. Um, it's just, I think it's just a much better way to work. Cool. Did you take any, any inspiration from Google on how you set up a product team here? I, I honestly uh, took more inspiration from the way Facebook was structured. Uh, I, I think you could tease out why that is. It wasn't that things at Google were worse necessarily. Um, uh, I think the types of problems we are solving and the types of problems that Facebook solve, or at least we're solving when I was there, are similar. Um, we're both building communication platforms. Uh, we deal with a lot of the same types of design problems. We both have a messenger. Um, we're both trying to build things inside the messenger. Uh, whereas you know some of the things that, that I worked at on at Google were just bigger, um, uh, and the time the time frames were typically longer. Uh, so I guess that changed how you work. You know, if you have a bigger bigger product, uh, bigger product release with a longer time frame. Um, then I guess the artifacts, as I said, like tend to change. Right, that, that makes sense. Um, one sort of cornerstone you outlined recently of how you think about product teams is um, this idea of a, a six 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 roadmap. That is thinking in terms of like six years, six months, and six weeks. Is it? Yeah. 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 Could you talk us through what that's about? Yeah, um, this is something that uh, you know sounds catchy, six six six, but it's actually proving to be incredibly useful for all our team. So again, this is something that I, I learned a, a version of this at Facebook and I kind of evolved it and changed it for our benefit here. Um, so when I was working at Facebook, there was um, some of the product management team talked in terms of two timelines. Um, they talked about 20 years and six months. And the idea was, you know, 20 years was your vision. It was your vision for the future. It was how you thought the world uh, would have changed in 20 years time. Uh, and how you may fulfill the mission you've set yourself. But 20 years is way too long, obviously, to be pragmatic. Uh, and so to make it pragmatic and realistic and actually get things built, um, six months was the time frame to work towards. So you could build over the next six months, heading for this 20-year vision. Uh, over the course of that six months, of course, things will change, and it was kind of a rolling timeline. As you get three, four months in, you might make you know, a plan for the next six months. And I, I think at the time at Facebook, we worked in quarters and halves. So there was like actually like a H1, like half, first half, H2 in a year. And we would have a plan for H1 and a plan for H2. But at Intercom, you know, we're obviously a startup. It's different. Um, uh, 20 years uh, as a cycle for a startup is um, probably too long. Now, it depends what you do. Maybe it's not. But for us, certainly, I think 20 years is, is, is too far ahead for it to be anyway useful. Um, and six months is pretty long as well. Like six months in our life is 
a long time. We actually get a lot built and shipped and released in six months. And so um, so I changed it uh, a little bit. And at Intercom, it's, as you said, 666. So six years, six months and six weeks. Six years is, is, is the vision piece. So the way that I describe the vision is, and people often, this is a subtle difference, and people get confused by this, I think. Six years is not a prediction of technologies. It's not what you think will have happened technologically over the next six years. It's, it's actually how, you, how the world changed over that period of time because of what you did. In other words, if you weren't around and if your company wasn't around, your vision would never come to pass and the world would look different. And so our six-year vision is how the world will have changed because of what we did. And that's what's inspiring about it. You know, we're enacting the change. The change isn't just going to happen because a bunch of people invented new technologies. Um, so that's the six-year vision. Six months is our concrete plan towards that six-year vision. Um, and uh, again, you know, similar to Facebook's, it just makes it much more pragmatic. Six months is a good time, for, time frame for us to think about. We'll, we'll generally be a similar size in terms of our teams and employees over, six month, over a six-month period. Um, uh, but beyond six months, I think it's bad. You know, I often say that like a two-year uh, time frame is the worst. Now, there are exceptions to this, of course, like with everything, like hardware or whatever, things that have longer production cycles. But with software, six, I think two years is terrible. In, in two years' time, it's far enough into the future that it's not particularly visionary, uh, or say not far enough that it's not visionary, but it's also too far ahead to really have a concrete plan because over the course of two years, like two years from today, we'll see like two new Android versions, two new iOS versions, new hardware potentially from both yeah. Apple and Samsung or Google or whoever. So it just would look different. Uh, like if we had a two-year plan two years ago, there'd be no watches or any of that kind of stuff going on. So, um, so it just means you like get circular, it's chaotic, etc. So I think six months is as long as you should think ahead if you're a startup. Um, and then six weeks is just our like nuts and bolts dialed in version of what we're building and shipping uh it's our we can work really fast you know lightning speed execution of this plan um and so if you have a six-year vision and you can map out the next six months uh everyone knows where we're headed and then six weeks is like the day-to-day you know um step-by-step progress the march towards that right plan. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. 
We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. It's a, it's interesting, like, when you, you know, I feel like you're kind of balancing, like, on one side, you know, six years, as you said, is quite a long time. It's, you know, it's long enough to think of these, like, you know, mammoth changes to, like, how a task gets done or to what, you know, what it is that users are trying to do, whereas six weeks is very much like it's, like, incremental. It's, like, let's add bits and pieces here. Mm-hmm. How do you, uh, how do you like your PMs to balance the idea of, like, I want to change, I want to redefine what the product is to, well, we better add this button? Yeah, we've developed a process. Uh, it's basically a balancing act. So right. we've, in order to, and, and, and if you do, try and do this in your mind, uh, in my experience, won't go well. Um, you'll overcompensate for some things versus others. You'll forget things. You know, the the it almost go, almost goes without saying that like the job of a product product manager is an extremely hard one. You've got to keep so much stuff in your head at all levels. You've got to be able to think like really strategically and long term. You've got to be able to think really tactically on an almost day to day basis. Everything in between. You're probably also dealing with like different types of of problems, like issues and bugs. Latency, speed is in your uh, wheelhouse to some degree. New features, improvements, you know, radically new things versus iterative things. So the way we've we've done this is we've got five inputs to our roadmap, five explicit inputs, um, and we uh, balance them. So the five are um, uh, things we believe in. That's just there's no. We are at Intercom extremely research driven. So this is just the one of the five that's not research driven. It's like things we think are cool and interesting and exciting. And there's no there's gonna be no, you know, basis in research and you shouldn't even bother looking for it. Mm-hmm. It's like things that are that, that we just think will be interesting. Uh, now there's actually kind of a caveat there because Usually, the reason that we think it's interesting is because we've got lo- read loads of blog posts about it, and like right, yeah. you know, there's just no formal research, I guess. Right? Exactly. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. The research is almost done like subconsciously in your brain yeah. uh, through os- through osmosis, and then just chatting to people and whatever else. Um, so things we believe in is one. Uh, a second one is these are by the way in no particular order. Right. Uh, second one is iterating recent product, which again, in my experience, is something you need to do deliberately, or you just won't. Mm-hmm. Like it's so easy to like ship something uh, and forget about it. Uh, ship something, move on, kind of shiny new ball syndrome. Okay. Everyone is their own worst enemy here, um, and so uh, and so that's like a very deliberate thing. We ship. We've you know philosophy here that we ship to learn. So we'll ship, and then we'll figure out if it's good or bad. Did it yeah. actually solve the problem we identified early on? Um, so we'll just set time aside to iterate. The way I phrase that to people often is like that every feature you ship kind of comes with its own roadmap. Yeah, so you have to manage as well because like yeah, your product might now have data visualizations but now you have a data visualizations roadmap of all the things you need to add to the data visualizations feature and I think a lot of people kind of forget that and they kind of get they got hung over on celebrating yesterday's shipment rather than thinking about today's new feature requests right yeah totally totally that's definitely the way I think about it as well you know we you know how good are we at at removing things Uh, I, I think we're not not bad you know we do remove features that don't get used but generally speaking I think it's true for almost everyone every piece of software that they get bigger. They just naturally get bigger. You build more than you take away. Um, and, and obviously there's an art to like actually try to add more add more power without adding more complexity, yeah. which is a whole other thing. Um, but typically people build more and so it gets more complex. And so you do actually inherit a whole bunch of like 
new usage patterns that never existed before. You're like, oh, wow, now there's like, you know, X number of people using this new thing we built and we need to talk to them too. Better keep them happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're saying so there's three more to go? Yeah, so uh, new things we believe in, iterating recent product. Um, we also have a whole track uh, that is dedicated to feedback we hear from customers. Right. Um, this is like heavily research driven, heavily qualitatively driven. Um, our customer support team is an incredible uh, asset to us here. You know, we think of our customer support team um, quite strategically in that regard. You know, they're not there to like service customers and keep them happy. That's clearly an important thing. But they're actually also there as an, this amazing input into into our roadmap. And so, um, so when co- they're, they're talking to customers through Intercom, um, they're talking to customers every day. Many, many customers every day. They're tagging conversations with, you know, things like what team it relates to, whether it's like a usability problem, a feature request, you know, something else, some areas of confusion. Uh, so they're tagging all these conversations, and then our product managers are synthesizing that, and our research team helps as well. And then they basically build a hit list uh, of things that our customers need. And um, the important part here is that in this input to our roadmap, we don't, don't just do what customers are asking. We, A, uh, prioritize them based on our own vision and mission. Again, like if you have this six-year vision, it's easy to look at a bunch of feature requests and actually decide to not do some. Uh, you know, our customers don't have the same insight into what our vision is as we do. And so we actually decide to not do things that are heavily requested. And when we make that decision, we'll actually then tell customers that we've no plans to build that thing. Um, so that's like that's like one really important caveat. The other important caveat is that um, often people, users of your product, don't know what they need. They like they're. I often say this to our team. Like they are experts in their problem. They're not experts in the best solution, and they will often describe their problem in terms of a solution. So they'll ask you for what they think they need. And so what we'll often do is our product managers will go back to those people and actually start talking to them and say, "Hey, you asked for this feature. Is that you know what are you actually trying to do? Why did you ask for that?" And they'll actually just get to the root of the problem, um, kind of like, you know, multiple layers deep of investigation, basically. Right. So that's a whole other area, whole other input, is um, uh, customer uh, customer requests, basically. Um, we also have a an area around scale. So as we, you know, as Intercom gets bigger, um, as we continue to thankfully grow and grow quickly. Uh, we get bigger customers, different types of customers. They have different needs than other companies that would have used Intercom historically. So we have a whole track for that, a whole track for like, how does Intercom work at scale? Right. Um, bigger companies with bigger teams, more users, just, it's just different. And so we have a whole track dedicated to, to, to that. You know, for a long time, I think we got away with designing Intercom for ourselves. We were um, very in tuned to... Uh, are the companies at least use Intercom are similar to us. We're very attuned to the types of problems they have. As we've grown, our user base is diversified, and so now we need to realize that we're not actually uh, experts in all the problems that other companies have. Um, and the fifth one is around quality. Uh, quality includes things like bugs, right. issues, performance, latency, uh, etc. Um, and so are the five. And so the balance uh, or the art to this is basically making sure that we're dealing, we're making progress on all five. Uh, each team is making progress on all five, each of our product teams. Um, and then, and that's basically it. Yeah. In reality, the, the one thing I would say, in case anyone listening to this wants to go set a like 20% rule for each of the five, is we oscillate. We absolutely yeah. oscillate, and that's the right thing to do. 
you know, we'll, we'll go through a phase of like building new product and then like our issue count will rise. And then we'll go through another phase of like, okay, let's like get that count down, you know. And we're, we're trying, we've had issues in the past in the company where it oscillated too much. Yeah. Uh, and now we've got a way better balance. Um, but, you know, when we, if you look at our roadmap and the way it's documented, you'll actually see all, you'll see that like every project has one of these five written beside it. It's, uh, it's interesting, like the way you describe, like say, the things we believe versus like, versus working on a feature we just shipped or whatever like you can totally see the balance between like tr- trying to come up with something that's like 10% better than what's live versus something that's just absolutely like a an absolutely better future facing thing um, is like you know to do the stuff like the things we believe type stuff do you you know do you encourage the PMs to have a vision of what like a fundamentally better intercom looks like yeah this is really interesting um, Ken Norton is uh, a partner at Google Ventures, and he was a product manager at Google before that. And um, he gave a talk about buying the product, which is a really great uh, product conference, uh, if you haven't heard of it before. I know you have, as you spoke at it. I'd make it really loud. But uh, so Ken gave a really interesting talk at last year's conference. And it was basically, the gist of it was like, um, the difference between like 10x type products or 10x type projects or companies and 10% type projects and companies. And so most of the time, uh, you know, people or teams iterate, uh, or, or sorry, um, end up heading towards the 10% improvement versus the 10X improvement. And, and the 10X is like literally 10 times better than what exists today. And the reason for that is risk. Like it's, it's risky to go 10X, because if you fail, like you've just failed. It's yeah. more binary, yeah. Whereas 10% is like safe, way safer. And like, so you can like add 10%, 10% better, and you can have a very um, predictable, I guess, predictable track of work. You generally, it's hard to like totally screw it up, etc. The difference is that um, the 10% companies are probably uh, on some local maximum. They're just like iterating towards something that's going to have diminishing returns over time. Whereas the 10x company is the one that will actually disrupt the market and come up with something radically different. And if you have this explicit mindset of like a 10x versus a 10%, when you tackle it at the same problem, when you tackle it from the 10x point of view, you just think absolutely differently about it, totally differently. You'll, you'll, all the assumptions and existing ways of working will go out the window. You'll radically rethink uh, ways in which it might work, you know, challenge all assumptions, uh, go back to first principles. Like we use that phrase a lot at Intercom go back to first principles, which means like tearing away all the existing constraints for how things actually work or the way the world works um, and starting from scratch and like getting to the root of a problem and then working from there. Right. So what's an example of this when you think about it in, like in terms of intercom? Like what's an area where we see like 10% things and 10x things? Yeah. Um, so one example is uh, Colin is our product manager for our Engage product. And uh, again, like because we have five inputs, uh, we actually... Think about both. I can't, I can't remember if Ken, in his talk, among the product, was saying they should only do 10x. I don't. Or I can't actually remember. Uh, we do both, for, for what it's worth. Uh, so, like, Colin's done some really good 10x improve. Or sorry, 10% improvements recently. So, uh, a few months ago, we um, launched this thing called Delivery Windows. So, before, when you sent a message uh, via intercom, you it just it sent whenever um, the criteria matched the user. So, user has done X or Y. The message got sent and they got it straight away. 
Um, and a 10% improvement there is, is a delivery window. So, oh, don't set on Saturdays or don't set on Saturdays or Sundays or, you know, don't send it at like 2 a.m. in the person's local time zone. Or it's like simple, like little uh, incremental improvements there, like 10% improvements. Um, but because uh, Colin is not only thinking about that, he's thinking about like a 10x improvement. Okay, what's a 10x improvement for a better way for a company to um, send messages to users? Then you start thinking about radically different things. You don't start thinking about like, okay, let's set a delivery window setting on a message that you turn off Saturdays. You think like artificial intelligence, machine learning. Like, could we um, you know, take inspiration from things like if this, then that, uh, where um, companies, other companies have built um, UI or experiences where anyone can program. Like, uh, so someone in marketing doesn't need to know how to program and doesn't need to know like logic uh, or like Boolean logic, or at least all they need to know is basic English, that some version of Boolean logic is basic English. And actually we write algorithms to figure out when to send that message. Uh, so they could set simple, so it could be, so on one hand, you know, I guess like, I don't know what the exact numbers here, a 10x is that it just happens automatically. Right. A 10x is like, we've built algorithms, we've used AI, we have a machine learning ecosystem, it just, it just works by magic and you should trust us, that's 10x. Uh, I don't know what the this is like uh, 5x is like <laughs> yeah. uh, something in the middle like if this then that where yeah. it's it's simple English anyone can do it um, and uh, but it's but it's still manual and so you know Colin our, again our product manager of this area is doing some 10% but he should be also thinking and is thinking 10x right because uh, 10x is, is 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 where like the real value lies in the longer term you know, and I'm like, you know, we at Intercom see ourselves very much as a long-term company. We plan to be around for a long, long time. And so 10Xs are critical to our future. So changing tact a bit, a year ago, you wrote a piece which caused a little bit of uproar where you said it is the end of apps as we know them. <laughs> yeah. and I think a lot of people missed the second clause there. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But um, that was about a year ago, I think. And uh it's interesting to kind of look back uh, at it and ask, like, how, how far do you think we've come along this way? Yeah, it is fascinating, actually. It's a fascinating question. Yeah, the, I had to write a second follow-up blog post called It's Not the End of Apps. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that was an awkward day on the index page of the blog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, um, the basic gist of that was that um, the, there was an argument, basically, that I was making that uh, you know, we, we at some level have reached bankruptcy in terms of apps, like this idea that's like all oh, these apps on our on our home screen and like you literally are swiping and there's like 16 more apps and 16 more apps and 16 more apps and like apps nested in folders of apps like this is crazy. This is like not a good experience. Like no one, you know, from the from the like start of the iPhone uh, looking forward or like in, in 2020 looking back, no one would be proud of this. Uh, outcome. This is not the outcome. This is like the crap outcome. And so what I was saying was that like it's not sustainable. That's not a sustainable model. And all of the things, all of the ecosystems being built up around this, like the kind of cottage industry, if you like, around the app stores, is is all optimized for like getting that getting that download, getting that button on your screen. And what I was kind of positing at the time was that um, this will this will change. And uh, and I was looking at like the the evolution of the notifications panel on phones. And so in the in the notifications panel, they were a starting to become much richer in terms of the content that was being delivered. Um, and two, they were becoming much more interactive. So the older model was was that these were signposts. 
you'd get a notification that's pointing you to an app, like deep linking you into that app. But the notification does nothing. Whereas these newer notifications with like the newest version of Android at the time, uh, I think it was L, I can't remember. Um, uh, you could actually like retweet something from the notifications panel or you could like reply to something. Um, and I just like, that's directionally the future more than the apps. And I actually reference Google Now a lot. Uh, I thought Google Now was like a great model for this, you know, and potentially I would imagine that, I, I don't know, is this true or not? This is like total speculation, but that Google Now and the notifications pane in Android would merge. They're effectively trying to do the same thing. The notification panel will also suffer from volume at some point, so they need to like rank it. Google now is trying to do that, bring information to you before you know you need it almost by knowing what you like, etc. And so the idea that I that I was expecting was Google now would would evolve really fast. And at this point, a year later, you know, my experience of Google now would be like full of third-party apps, full of third-party content. I'd be um, you know replying and iterating, or sorry, uh, replying and texting and writing and taking actions, the mini app workflows in each Google Now card. That's what I thought would happen. And I thought like a, just Google I.O. just gone, we'd see that. I thought we'd see like some radical um, step change in how Google Now works. That didn't happen. I, I have no idea why. Uh, Google Now has improved in a whole bunch of different ways, but it's just been slower than I thought. Um, on the other side, though, things happened that I had no idea were going to happen at all, but, but are directionally supporting this idea that, that, that apps and this app icon are coming to an, coming to an, coming to some end, uh, changing at least, and so um, what you're starting to see is apps uh, integrating with other apps. And so today, for example, if I open Foursquare, I can um, call an Uber from Foursquare, and the way that works is that um, there's a little SDK, and uh, Uber is basically embedded in Foursquare. I can, you know, I don't necessarily, I don't, I can't remember the technicalities of Uber's integration with Foursquare. Do you actually need the Uber app in the background on your phone? I don't know. In the future, you definitely do not. Yeah. You definitely do not. If that exists today, it's just a temporary technicality. So you don't need Uber. So you don't have Uber, but you have Foursquare. You open Foursquare. You're like, oh, I want to get a ride to that restaurant. Um, you you tap Uber in Foursquare. Foursquare has enough. Uh, either a, a middle party does this or whatever, but they have enough context and data to actually order you an Uber. And um, and this is like incredible. And this is to me is like a glimpse into the future. And and there's kind of a few interesting things that you can pull out of that. One is that you're thinking about services and not apps. Uh, so at this point, Uber isn't an app, They're not in a right. traditional sense. Like they don't, they probably don't give a monkeys at this point. Uh, if the apps downloaded, they care if Ubers get ordered. And so Foursquare users keep ordering Ubers in Foursquare and never download Uber. Uber probably doesn't care. Uh, it's interesting to think how that will change like engagement metrics and like thoughts around like is my product doing well? Even that question isn't relevant in that world, right? Like, yeah, yeah, th- th- absolutely. Like, um, I think I kind of referenced in that post, I think, which is still true today. I think, and again, this is a relic of just the the, the powers at play in the ecosystem that exists. But you know, app owners typically obsess about app store reviews, and so like a lot of the, uh, um, and that's all to do with like further downloads. Mm-hmm. So it's like. Hey, hey! Thanks for downloading our app. I'm glad you're using it. Rather than try and get you to use it more, I'm actually going to optimize for you getting your friend to download it. Right. And so now what we've seen is like, aside from the app store has been like filled with thousands, if not millions and millions of apps, you actually have uh, apps that have huge install bases, massive, hundreds of thousands of users, and close to zero engagement. 
right? And like there's loads of nice statistics on this. Like I think the average person uses 18 apps a week, uh, and they've way more than that on their phone. They've like 50 to 100 apps on their phone. So all these apps are downloaded and are never used. And and actually, like at Intercom, you know, when we think about mobile marketing and mobile engagement and think about the future again this is this could be a 10 10 10x thing it's probably not a 10x thing but the 10 percent thing is let's make app store reviews better how could we build a product that would make um app store reviews easier that's that is like not interesting to me at all what's interesting to me is how do we build a product where you can communicate with all those users who've downloaded the app and get them to use it uh and so um and so anyway, so that's that's like a whole bunch of ways in which it's changing. Uh, yeah. One um, one thing that stands out for me there is like the idea that like Uber in that in that example exists in another app's context. If you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like, so Foursquare is bringing something to the party. It's saying here's where you are or here's where you want to go. Yeah. And Uber is like living inside that. You, you think like that model of like of like apps borrowing context from each other is gonna be a sort of the, the new sort of way you'll see that like like this used to be like you know people would talk about this being like deep linking or whatever or like how do you string apps together or whatever whereas this is actually a deeper thing than that right this is like how do you like make an app the functionality of an app live inside another app right yeah totally like the um, you know I'm trying to think of a good um, analogy or metaphor here like uh, I guess websites the original like structure of HTML is a good example where uh, you know, all, all links do is point you to another place. Like, it's like a signpost in the road. It's like yeah. there's a fork in the road, and, like, you can take one road, or you can take the other. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the signpost has no opinion about which road you take. Well, sometimes they do, they've got bigger writing. But, you know, yeah. generally speaking, they've got no opinion. Signpost doesn't know. It doesn't even know where you want to go. Whereas, um, and, like, deep linking, I think, suffers a little bit from that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's people trying to replicate links and signposts where... Yeah, like you said, the deeper integration is way more interesting, way more interesting. And so Foursquare, um, you know, here, a good example of this is Button, right? Button are like this um, startup in New York, really, really fascinating company. And what Button do is basically uh, provide buttons. Uh, so they, they, they provide that Uber button in Foursquare that's powered by Button. Um, what Button actually do really is like they're much more of a back-end service. And so um, I'm not sure entirely sure uh, the technicalities of this, but basically like, they have SDKs. I guess, you know, in theory, Uber can, can give Button a bunch of context and Button can pass that on to Foursquare. Yeah. And so whole workflows could be developed here, whole workflows. So like if you order an Uber in Foursquare, I know this works today, if you order an Uber in Foursquare that uses Button, uh, it actually lets you choose the car, right. right? So like suddenly now parts of the Uber app are, are inside Foursquare. And so there is, and that, you could extend that down to context. So if there's some way in which these two apps can share data, or and maybe it's like hashed and anonymized and whatever else, yeah. but they share data, then suddenly, um, you know, the Foursquare experience of Uber could be totally personalized, right? Based on your usage of Uber elsewhere. That's that's fascinating. That's way yeah. more interesting. Yeah, this idea, like this, is akin to what Fred Wilson wrote when he was talking about like contextual runtimes, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been great reading, uh, um, you know, towards the end of the year, uh, the end of 2015. Uh, ben Evans wrote a fantastic, of wrote a fantastic post uh, called 16 Mobile Thesis, which is just 16, it's kind of self-explanatory, 16 yeah. things that are happening, some are more speculative than others. And then Fred Wilson wrote a, um, a follow-up post, which was, uh, say, you know, one of, one of um, Ben's things was that... Uh, um, there's going to be a new runtime, basically, that the app store isn't sustainable. 
the model as it exists is not sustainable. Um, and so, uh, and again, you can look to Asia for a lot of this. A lot of this is already built inside WeChat. You know, right. WeChat has an entire entire ecosystem of services and apps running inside uh, WeChat. You know, uh, so if you open Maps, for example, if you open up, open up a map in WeChat, you can order a taxi from the map, right. stuff like that. So anyway, so yeah, so these apps, well, they're not really apps anymore. These services are running. There's a new runtime, so they're running in another uh, environment that could be a platform could be a different app like a maps app mm. who knows yeah and so so fred's point was that um, it will just it'll just be entirely dependent on context right. and so um you know uh the context of what you're currently doing will inform the types of new services you get and like of course we, we might get this wrong so such that the service you actually want isn't being provided in that runtime it's been provided in some other runtime right. But again, these things like, and we'll probably do all sorts of stupid things like with shopping and geo-targeting and like, we'll be all, like, all, you know, yeah. I think again, like uh, the world of advertising might get this terribly wrong before they get it right. Yeah. Uh, um, but it'll be really interesting to see how this evolves. For sure. It's a, it's a really interesting trend. I think like the most, uh, the thing I like most about it is it, um, it provides these clean breakpoints and workflows. So like you can basically, you can nail a particular piece, but if you know the next logical step is book a restaurant mm-hmm. uh, you now have a way to facilitate that within your product whereas before it was just like well off you go you know some other product now takes over yeah so it's interesting um as you said there like you know we're at the end of 2015 as startups look towards 2016 you know i know you had a very popular post about how to build and scale a product team i know a lot of people looked at that and read that um what like what should they think about in terms of their product teams for the year that lies ahead yeah, uh, at the end of any year, I I I, lo- I kind of love it I, and I hate it. I mostly love it. Uh, it's an arbitrary deadline, right? It's like oh, thirty first of December. What does that mean? I, some someone deep in history made this stuff up, right? It's just another day. Um, but it's a really good time. So in some senses, I kind of like hate that it's some arbitrary. But it's a really, I personally find it a, a great time to reflect. And what you also find is you'll get like top ten lists, right? Like. Top 10 things to watch out for in 2016, like top 10 new technologies in 2016, uh, 10 things to watch out for Apple, from Apple in 2016. I hate those lists. I think they're terrible. I think they're told mostly, unless, unless there's some really good analysis and insight by a really good writer, they're a waste of space. They're total distraction. Um, and the reason is because they're basically like all fads and people are making this crap up. And if you actually go back to the very first thing we talked about, the 666, um, again, that, 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 that idea of a vision is not a prediction of technologies. So I hate all these predict technology prediction articles. They're just, they're pretty noisy. It's not a prediction of technologies. It's, it's the way the world changed because of, of the change you enacted. That's a vision. That's an inspiring thing. Uh, and so when people like go into these new years, and I do this too, like I, I, I am thinking like, what are the themes for us in 2016? Both product-wise, like what are the themes for us in terms of products? You know, what are the themes for us in terms of how we work, uh, our team, you know, what can we be better at? And, and of course, so I use it as this arbitrary forcing function to, like, make, get better. Uh, and, um, and what I try to avoid, and, and my advice basically to your question, for other people to avoid is to, like, get wrapped up in all these, like, ad hoc lists. And, and actually, you know, if you have a really good vision, a really good six-year, and again, six is somewhat arbitrary, 
Because like we had, six weeks isn't that's how we work. Six months isn't that's how we work. And then I made it six 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 because it was like that cool. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, but you know, I do think it's generally it's generally accurate. Like you know, four five six maybe seven eight years that kind of general time frame, but not two like I was saying earlier. Mm-hmm. So um, so if you have this like longer term vision, the change you want to enact in the world, then that 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 helps you get away from all these like you know technologies of twenty sixteen, like VR will come up like virtual yeah. reality. Like, you know, Oculus, I think, is going to launch to the public early next year. Uh, and there'll be, like, loads of hype around that. Loads of people are going to write loads of crap about it. Because yeah. they've, they've done what's going to happen. They, like, you know, we didn't know what would happen with the iPad or iPhone, or, and this is going to be similar. And so, like, you know, putting in place some product strategy, putting in place some, like, six-month roadmap around VR, is probably not smart, unless you work in, like, gaming or something yeah. that's clearly going to be disrupted by this idea. Um, and so so... Anyway, so six, six, having that six-year vision is, like, way more important. So, uh, you know, my advice to people as we kind of, like, go into 2016 is actually to think much more long-term. Um, use all the, like, fodder that exists. Uh, like, there is obviously signal amongst the noise in these lists of, of, like, things to look out for in the year. But use that thematically. Uh, it's not your strategy. These are themes, and that's the six months, basically. Right. That's you know these themes. So VR and Oculus might inform things over six months. You might try a little experiment here and there. Maybe you might kind of see how it pans out. But you're definitely not like betting anything on it. I think we should probably leave it there and go back to work. Speaking yeah. of speed, <laughs> cool. exactly, yeah. Paul Adams, thanks very much. Cool, thanks, Rick. thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, just visit soundcloud.com forward slash intercom. And if you want to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.io. 